the question is essentially this. How is it that there is a tendency within members of our civilization not to use the most sophisticated tools? And there is a tendency not to use them, even though you're exposed to them. And I'm going to try to show you what kind of process is involved. <coughs> if, uh, if I'm able to do that tonight, uh, you should be able to get uh, enough information here to be able to answer those questions, just how it is that we revert away from the useful tools. Uh, we'll talk about the rules of the game first. Uh, the rules of the game refers to any society, and this will, I draw the circle here, to just to put a societal group in here, a group of people that operate in accordance with uh, the provisions of the land and the waters, as I pointed out before, and their culture and their values develop in terms of the actual reinforces out there. In other words, if you walk in snow, you sink deeply into the snow, especially if it's three or four feet deep. If you wear snowshoes, you don't sink as deeply. Okay, now if you come into a culture like this and begin to talk about the history and growth of values, and let's say this member of society, like all the other members, picks up that information, and he knows that everybody's conditioned to certain things. Let's assume they know that intellectually. But in the real world, if this man steals his furs. The luxury of sitting back saying, well, he's been conditioned to steal my furs. You're still furless Lamont. And so what happens is you whack the hand that comes into your room that's working at stealing your furs. So all the information that you learn runs something like this uh, that's intellectual about the earth, about geology, and it tapers off. This is hardly anything that pays off in it. Now, if you manufacture light bulbs and it costs you three cents and you sell them for 63, and I say you're exploiting people, if he sells them for 25 cents, his income is lower. So he has the luxury of being an intellectual giant on the nature of the origin of human behavior. But the price system reinforces all activities that are pre-structured in the environment, whereas all the other activities are intellectual. Is there anyone who doesn't understand that? There's no feedback. If you had a dummy horn, you blew on it, nothing came out, no noise, nothing. You set it aside, even though he said it's worth $10,000. If it doesn't make any sounds, you can't use it. In fact, if you blew on your horn, you heard nothing. You then turn around to the guy next to you and say, well, there ain't no sound coming out of me. And you know something's wrong with your hearing. But in the real world, everything we learn in school, everything we learn about physical geometry, mathematics, as long as it can be applied in the system, that's why physicists that work at a university that can explore the hell out of phenomena, anything they're working on, uh, they learn a lot, they write a lot about human behavior, but the world, not like Margaret Mead. Margaret Mead has an investment in cultural anthropology. She studies people and talks about the nature and origin of customs, but she goes out and she lives amongst these people. She comes back to the university, lectures about them. So. She really doesn't live in this culture that depends on the reinforcement from the elements of the environment. In other words, if Margaret Mead lived here and if underprivileged Negroes moved next door and underprivileged Swedes moved in here and underprivileged Cubans and they all were loud, the Negroes used to steal her clothing off the line, she will lecture at school on anthropology, but pretty soon, every time a black came near her house, she'd take the laundry in. You know what I'm talking about? That's the real world. And the real world is aversive to the luxury of being descriptive about anything. 
Uh, another thing, you've got a business appointment at this place which is very important to you, but your brakes need realigning. And it depends on your economic pressures, whether you're going to get in your car and drive 20 miles, you think, oh, my brakes might hold up. Uh, you can't sit back and say, well, uh, it's illogical to take that trip. Socioeconomic pressures force us into certain categories, and we, even though our brakes fail on the highway, it's a terrible accident, here's what we say. I should have known better. How can I be so stupid? I knew the brack. That's called after the facts. If you get there, you say, I made it. I thought I'd make it. Otherwise, you wouldn't have left if you didn't think you'd make it. Now, if you make it and on the way back, the thing breaks down. Say, God damn it, I should have known better. After the facts, we all say, God damn it, I should have known better. And it's very hard to say, God damn it, I'm not going. God damn it, I'm not going to do that. That's a very difficult thing to do because there's no reinforcers in it. When you don't make that trip, the conclusion of the events you expect are not forthcoming. So I'm trying to say to you, no matter what you learn about science and human behavior, a psychologist that studies rats, dogs, or anything else, he may build categories of behavior and show all of the connectiveness between the sequential events that change behavior. But when he goes out into the world and somebody reaches for cake on a table before he does and drinks his coffee and slurps it up, you know, he doesn't sit back and says, has slurp patterns in drinking coffee. He becomes annoyed. He says, my God, he can at least drink something. You know, uh, he has attitudes about it. So uh, if he lived in a culture where everybody, you know, I remember when I was a kid, the old Arabs, when they ate, you would hear the meshing of food, you know, and they'd open their mouth and they'd see the food half chewed being pushed around. And other cultures say, that's a terrible thing to do, to, to, to chew your food real loud or chew gum in public, you know. And they develop attitudes about it. The cultural anthropologist can go to another tribe, sit there and watch them all make noise and say, well, that, that's their custom. But the anthropologist is annoyed when it's done in their culture. So no anthropologist can exceed their environment, really exceed the environment. And no one can. Uh, if I might seem in some instances to, to excel in terms of the environment, because I'm really not in it. In other words, I don't have to go out there and swing a pick, you know, or engage in the rat race that you're subjected to, the pressures. So I try to avoid that, and there's a price. You see, I have to do without a lot of things. But it's easier for me to do without a lot of things than to go out there. Does that make sense to you? Right. Now, if I say to you, the trouble with you is you're not, in, I'm not out there. All I give you is the luxury of related values in terms of conditioning. But some people say, well, how come this person has come into your sessions for 10 years how come they're still schmoes? <laughs> because the world is on their back. They can't afford the luxury of socio-cybernearing. To say, what would socio-cybernearing say about it? Because the world is out there, cops giving you a ticket. And you, you were saving up to have your carburetor re, you know, reserviced or changed. And the, the amount of the ticket is going to stop you from having that done. So you save up again, then you get a letter from the insurance company. Your auto insurance is due. You thought, geez, I just had a fresh breath of air. See? Well, you save up your last 150 bucks and buy a typewriter, and it's a lemon. You know, you, you can't get it, you can take it back. But if you take it back and they exchange it, you're all right. But if they don't exchange it, you got a problem if you've got a right. So you can read all the books on control of the nervous temperament. You know what I mean? One who gets angry, <laughs> that sort of shit. 
the luxury of being able to live that way requires that you can't work on a railroad train. The guy says, Jesus Christ, you call this scrambled eggs? The eggs have been sitting there, they're cold. He can't say a man's temperamental, exhausted, doesn't have enough energy to be reasonable. Yes, you're right, sir. Very hard to develop that attitude because people come at you. Now, most of us, or I should say some of us here, can carry a bag of shit that high. Guy can bitch about the eggs. His woman says, my God, the sun coming through the windows, they ought to do something about these trains. It's awful. Can I get a seat on the other side? You know, especially if the seats are reserved. I don't think they are yet. Uh, so you can afford to take like 16 complaints a day, but if it's 104, Carl's eyeballs roll up, even with lobe in his hand. <laughs> because the real world, you know, a lot of people walk out there and say, I wonder what Fresco would think of me now, yelling at this old guy in the seat. Because you even look at yourself and laugh when you go in the other room and say, I guess I'm some kind of jerk. You're not some kind of jerk. You're subject to genuine worldly pressures. So the question again, is it doesn't matter how many years you come to these sessions. What does matter is what's pushing you out there. How many corrugated fingers are up your ass with thorns on the end of the corrugations moving up and down. And that is why people have difficulty. Because they must exit this place into the real world. Now the only thing you can do, and, and a dangerous thing for people to come to these sessions, is they might be able, uh, here's what I do, if I find that I'm now able to take 16 bits of horseshit per day. I've learned to do that. At first I can only take four and then I blow my sack. Now I can take 16. The trouble is when I take 16 now, I'm still all right, so I'll take a little more. Because I'm that well adjusted. And I take on more. Now I'm super uptight because I've surpassed the limit of my ability to handle stress. So the trouble with some of us, though, that we, we do make progress, but we take on more. We extend ourselves more. See, if you find you can write 20 pages a day, say, geez, I think I'll go 40 a day. And on the end of the day, it'd be like that. If you can do 20 conveniently, just do 22. Don't go pushing yourself, because then you can get to hate writing. You can write yourself right out of existence. Like I said to some people here, when you've got a painting and you paint the scene of the ocean, and you say, gee, that's a beautiful ocean scene. I think I'll add a little more blue, a little more yellow. You can paint the picture right out until it becomes a lemon. There are people that have overpainted the thing out of existence. You think you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. All right. You can overcorrect script till it becomes shit. You know, if, if you're so finicky that every line has to be changed continuously, then you can write yourself right out. All right. A person engaged in... Uh, a person that has arrived at a state of a high degree of emotional proficiency, you must learn what your ease point is. If you can take 18 problems a day, well, stay at 18 and get off. Tomorrow you're great. You can handle anything. Now, uh, in fact, if you can stay at 15, you're even wiser. Okay? Now, sometimes we start out with a high level of energy. You say, well, this is my day. You got a high level of energy. And you go into a tub of horseshit because you've got a high level of energy. And you exhaust yourself. Because the judgment made in the early morning, because I feel so great, I expose myself to horseshit in excess of that which I can take. So whenever you make a judgment at a high energy level, I suggest when somebody calls you and suggests something to you, say, call me back at 4 o'clock and I'll let you know. And because in, in great enthusiasm, you might make a decision that you don't care for. Uh, I'll revert back to something I said in the past. Uh, by holding a large dinner, 
having the best cooks around, preparing the best foods for most people, the kind of food they like. And then after that, bring on the dancing girls, then ask for contributions, and it's very high. If you put people in high key, you can raise more money for the crippled cockroaches or anything else. Any fund you want to raise money for, you bring them in a high key. That's why a guy dates a girl, takes her out, has a good time, and when everybody's happy, then you move in. The chances are you have to get a better response. And I always say that the most important decisions made by people is during D-Day. Like when your typewriter breaks down, and uh, then you get a flat tire, and you got a migraine headache, and I say, you goddamn asshole, Paula, that's the real fresco. That's the time that you make your judgments about people in low key. That's the time when you really know what you call your friends. Not on Sunshine Valley Day when everything is going well. And so if we get to understand that, if you at least understand this, you can force your behavior through exhaustion. You can... Uh, take on so many problems you can't even handle your own lifestyle. So the general idea then is why people who should know better do things that gets them into hot water is essentially because they've taken on more than they can handle. Or there's no actual reinforcers in the environment for it. Now, any questions about that? We can do away with that concept that you should know better. Before we pass that, is there any question about the idea that a person that has acquired a certain kind of information, why they revert back? Any questions about it? Okay. The formula you can use is the ability to take inventory of your own personality. And that's a hard thing to do. If you take a kind of an inventory of your personality in the morning, your attitudes and all, take an inventory in the evening and see if it's the same. If your inventory of your personality is fairly constant, then you've achieved something uh, that's very rare. You've achieved a degree of really non-participation. If I go to a party, for example, or a party you would consider low-grade, and there I am dancing at the party and eating spaghetti and all that, and I'm really not at that party that much. I might sit there, be in the middle of the party, but not there. Not in the sense that I get caught up in it. How many of you find yourselves going to events, but really not quite in it, but watching it. Has anybody done anything like that up to now? Okay. And, and this is the attitude I talk about. But if you go to an event and are caught up in it subjectively, then you become exhausted, then you become sucked in. The system, like I try to indicate symbolically in the past, was that a person uh, this is a free enterprise system, this is socio-cybernearing. As you learned about socio-cybernearing, I mentioned before, you had several thin gossamer strings holding you to socio-cybernearing. But the real world has stainless steel cables to the church, the free enterprise system, respectability, what will many think. And you've got thousands of cables that pull you toward the real world. As you learn new ideas, you've got these thin cables, and as these old cables shrink. These snap. Uh, why don't you back the chair against that door so that it holds, if you can. All right, in talking about the same subject, I don't know how many of you are going to be able to make this point. The bit of getting angry, the habit of getting angry, I should say, we all have the habit of getting angry. 
the habit of getting angry is, re is essentially related to this, that for the moment you have become subjectively involved in something. And love, like I said before, is a very subjective thing. And therefore it tends to induce subjective aspects of behavior. And I would suggest this, that as you fall in love with somebody or as you become that involved with somebody emotionally, to be able to sit back and enjoy the relationship and yet not get sucked into the vortex of the uh, ultra-subjectivity where you lose perspective. Uh, let me say it another way. Uh, yesterday I mentioned at the session that the, the dangers of love was that it was a subjective thing. And uh, what would take its place is understanding. And I, I'll use that word in different ways. When I say understanding, a high degree of predictability about the person you're with. Uh, areas, here, here, this represents a person, and this represents that person's predictability about the other person. Now, if I were to ask this person that has this scale of predictability about this person, how, what about thus and so? I say, well, I don't know that person in that area. Now, you can do that. It's very difficult to do. I don't know what my car is like on mountain roads, but I like it in the city. I like it in Miami, but in San Francisco, the car may give me a lot of different problems, you know, going up hills and down hills, uh, all kinds of problems. So when I go to San Francisco, I've got to do something else brand new. This is an exaggerated hill in San Francisco. When you park your car, you turn your wheels toward the curb when you put your brakes on. A lot of people leave the wheels headed downhill, you know, and they pull the brakes on in the same way they pulled it on in the flat country. And so if the brakes were to release, at least your car will go into a building on the side of the hill or the wheels will hit the curb. But if you put them straight, you've made no adjustment for that new country. So when you meet a new person, instead of subjectively saying, I love everything about that person, I love everything I know about that person. Now, uh, we also must say, what is it that I don't know about the person? I don't know what their work habits are like. Let, let's say, can I use you? Let's say I live with you and, and you're, you're uh, playing your violin. And I say, uh, shit, you know, you've been playing for four hours. We haven't had any time together at all. And you say, it's just another 20 minutes. And I say, well, all right. When you say just another 20 minutes, you've contradicted my need. See, I, I'm not saying this is true. This is true. Because the reason I brought it up is because I have a need to be with you. And you said, another 20 minutes. You just interrupted. Now, if you said to me, uh, I'm going to play for about four hours, maybe five hours. Can you take it? And I said, I don't know. And you said, tough shit. This is a must for me. It's important as our relationship, my rehearsal with the violin. Then I've got to learn to not permit you, but to allow. I must accept that difference without saying, she thinks more of a violin in practice than she does of me. Is that all right? No. If, if you are a hand holder, an all-day hand holder, and I, let's say you're a hand holder for eight hours, and I, I get my complete relief and kicks by holding hands for an hour and a half. And I'm completely gratified. Because that, that's all I need. But she needs three hours of it. I have no right to say, uh, why don't you become a two-hour hand holder? And, and she has no right to say, why don't you become an eight-hour hand holder? You've got to understand there's a difference on the part of the other person. And if you're more educated in that area, uh, I would generally suggest submitting 
to the difference of the person that needs the eight-hour handhold. You know why? Because it should be easier for you. It's more difficult for a person that's subjectively involved. Does anyone who doesn't understand that? It's easier for you. It's easier for me. Now, if my daughter, when she was 15, did 22 stupid things in a row, I'm always pleasantly surprised because it wasn't 28. Because I used to say, what can you expect of Bambi? That's my daughter's name. What can I expect of my mother? And my mother does 27 stupid things an hour. Well, I'm using derogatory language here. Because that is her pattern. And if one day she does something real pleasant and makes several good decisions, I say, I'm sure glad you're over that. She, nobody's over that. No personality that you've known over the years undergoes a quantum jump in behavior. Because, uh, like I indicated, let's, uh, let, let's use Call this time. Let's say that Call uh, earns uh, $27 a week. He always says to the boss, that's right, is that what you want done? I'll do it right away. The boss says, come in Saturday. He says, I'll be there. What time do you want me? The boss says, come in at 6.30. He says, I'll be in at 5. And, and he's been working for that company for years. He's got a lot of payments and obligations. So his behavior has accommodated to that problem. His grandfather died last week and left him $17 million. He drives by the plant, blows his horn, the boss comes out and he goes, <coughs> and then he drives on. And, and the boss says, can I talk to you? He says, not a fucking chance. And he says, boy, did that son of a bitch change. And I said, Carl never changes. Mm -hmm. What happened to Carl? Carl had in his brain a pattern of behavior in Luxuryville. that we never manifested. It was in prison, locked up. <laughs> then there was the behavior that's a, that was necessary to live, which he has learned. And he does it, and he swallows, and he comes in Saturday, and the boss says, you didn't clean under the toilet bowl, and he cleans under the toilet bowl. He's accepted that. He says, don't, when you get through, clean a bathtub, too. He cleans a bathtub. He says, drive my wife home on the way when you go home. But she lives in the opposite direction. Yeah, drive her home anyway. All of that is called accommodation. He may be able to accommodate to many, many things, but once his grandfather dies, the accommodation gates are welded. He closes the gates and pulls a welder in, and he welds them closed. And the boss says, about Saturday, he says, hold your tongue. And doors don't yield. Now, he no longer does a lot of things. And Sid says, that son of a bitch really changed since he's come into money. Nobody changes. Everybody has all kinds of patterns in their head, and many of them are in prison. Some of them are in titanium prisons, meaning super welded. So human beings, under certain circumstances, open the gates. And you say, Jesus, so that's what you're really like. Like I said before, we will never know what anyone is really like until everyone has economic security and doesn't have to answer to anyone else. So if you wonder about people that suddenly change, there's no such thing. If you've been a pain in the ass, argumentative all the time, you see me, tripping people as they walk by, he's been doing it for 18 years, then one day he says, Jesus, Joe, you know, I didn't mean to trip you. I guess I've been a narrow-minded sort of idiot. And just, well, I'm glad you changed. No one can. Because the brain is so saturated with a million and one fruitless pathways that any little event like that is comprised of a thousand neurons, whereas the early habit patterns are two million neurons. So human beings do not change on Wednesday morning. 
even though they get down on their knees and say, I've accepted Christ. Alcohol's out the window, no more fucking around. The law to the letter. And they mean it at that moment. When the prostate gland is full of seminal fluid again, seminal fluid, what happens is the values change with them. So understand, what I'm trying to get across is that people do not change like that. Now, if you've known people for many years and suddenly they come at you in a seemingly different way, it's not that they've changed. It's that conditions have permitted them, whether the conditions are right or wrong, good or bad, permitted that aspect of the personality to come into fruition. Zerunga doesn't understand that. And I want you to walk out of here saying, Jesus, I don't know what happened, the guy suddenly changed. No one can. Okay? A Baptist doesn't become a hard, mechanistic atheist overnight, or in a week, or three weeks, or four months. What they do is they become, this is the Baptist that they were, and they're that kind of a Baptist now. And then a few years later, they're that kind of a Baptist. But no one can let go of their past conditioning. They can in engineering. They can say that, that, like I indicated at other times, that if an airplane wing had to be that thick to support its weight, awaiting the development of space-age metals, they could make the wing thinner, only because the new metal permits that. They can change something. So anyone doesn't understand that? Technologically, we can change something. If I make a pair of glasses that you put on, called the singular glasses, anyone wears them, they can all see well through the glasses. They're, they're automatically accommodate to any eye problem. Well, all of us are capable of taking on those glasses because it doesn't call for a change in the value system. Does anyone doesn't understand that? It doesn't call for a change in the value system. Now, if I give you that little ball the next time you go to work and you blow on it, it makes the same sounds that your trumpet makes or whatever you're plucking at. Right? It just blows on it. It sounds terrific. Because it's a, I know what I bring you down. It just don't look right. Now, even if he's got this little ball that he holds in his hand and makes the same sounds, I make one very small and keep it in his mouth. And just sit there and all these sounds come out. Somehow the rest of the orchestra feels very uncomfortable. So even if you took the violinist, took his violin away, and cello, and gave him a little ball in his mouth, and they all sat there, tooting away like mad, you know, <laughs> but you have no instruments. See? Somehow, the manager doesn't like it. You know why? Does anybody know why? Because the brain has locked onto an image of a lot of people sitting up on a platform with chromium strips and backlighting and panoramic backdrop, you know, drapes. There's a pattern in our heads for a musical evening, you see? So if the pattern isn't there, we feel uh, unholistic about what we've become familiar with. See, all of us become familiar and our lives are organized around patterns. So you've got to understand, if you alter the patterns, there's got to be behavioral differences. If anyone doesn't understand that. Suppose I went over to a group of astronauts and I said, now you just sit on this hunk of steel. There's just a chair there, well made, but there's no more cover over you. Because we have an electronic barrier that you can breathe in and yet there's no wind blowing at you or anything. The guy is going to feel very uncomfortable, especially if you put him on this disc and tilt it about that angle above the earth, about 60 miles above the earth. He's going to feel terribly insecure. I said, would you be kept there by a force field? A force field isn't very comfortable. See? 
So if you drive an automobile that just has seats and no body, say wheels, and you're sitting in that seat, and there's no bumpers, no glass, nothing, just a force field in front of that car, you feel terribly uncomfortable in traffic. But you feel when you hit something, you're going to go right down the street. Only if that is demonstrated. In other words, if they put you on a disc and tilt it and shake it, you don't fall off. Turn it upside down above boiling lead, and you can't get through the force field. Then it becomes secure. But there are still the habits of the old brain of nothing in front of you. And there is a suspended feeling of insecurity. Uh, like in the movie, uh, that, uh, the book or the film that I've been working on, this couple is lying on the floor of an airplane in the future, and uh, the floor disappears, and they can see the sky going by and everything. It's a transparent steel. And uh, they feel very uncomfortable. And the girl looks at the guy, and one looks at the girl. They feel terribly insecure, cold sweat on their hands. And the computer senses that. So the floor becomes opaque until there's a little window. And then they feel much more secure, as long as they can see that floor. And you've got to understand, our lifestyle, our habits, are something like this. If you got in the Empire State Building, and just was on a glass floor elevator with the bottom illuminated, no walls, nothing. And you can see the shoes lit up and everything going by, but you couldn't touch the moving walls. You still would feel terribly insecure. That's called associative memory. So it is not possible for us to change suddenly and enjoy things that are that different. Now, if you want to know why people feel emotionally insecure, an operational definition is low-level predictability. All right, now here's how you can tell low-level predictability, uh, how it's visible in human behavior. When people come up to you and they talk to you, and I say they talk to you and they say, you goddamn crazy kids in this town, you can tell that they're emoting, emoting, and you can tell that they're merely spilling over their hostility toward the uh, new generation. This point, they're not sitting back and saying, I wonder whether their customs differ from ours when we were younger. Although the customs are foreign to me, I wonder how long it would take to accommodate. That's real, uh, a real inquiry into the difference. And the person says, you know what? And you, the eyes aren't even looking at you. It's just feedback from the brain, like a record. So I have tremendous fear of subjective behavior. Shuma doesn't understand that? I have a fear, insecurity, tremendous insecurity of subjective behavior. And if a person says, gosh, how beautiful everything is, and a person says, uh, I enjoy the scenery and I think everything is apparently very magnificent, uh, very carefully worded and thought out, so you're not carried away, swept off your feet. Because when you're swept off your feet, you're dangerous and you lose your perspective. And uh, the question, were you here uh, when we talked about emotions? What was it, what was it? yesterday did we cover emotions? Were you here yesterday? Mm -hmm. uh, I was saying that the more you learn about things, it, it doesn't mean that your emotions disappear. It means that they change. So we will always have emotions, but they're not manifest. That's why when you work as a social worker, and somebody comes in and says, I got seven kids and they're not eating well, all you do is make notes. And when did you receive your last check? So oh, you haven't received any. You write down. But if, if somebody comes along and says, I got seven kids and they haven't eaten, oh my, oh, when? How many days? 
11 days. That's purely subjective. But the social worker just writes. See? And the social worker that would get involved in each family problem would have a nervous breakdown. The doctor that works in an army tent as they bring in a guy with a leg torn off and hanging by a few muscle strands, that the doctor says, oh, oh, horrible. He can't operate, can't do well. So what he has to do is look at the condition and say the best approach is the Davidson principle, see, of linking the muscles together temporarily <coughs> until he can get to that person. And, and just set every leg in the cast and uh, temporarily arrest the condition and work on the next person. But to get emotionally involved, while Joe comes in with a broken leg, I'm taking a call with a shattered shoulder blade. See? And I'm working on Joe's leg, and I'm going to take a poor call out there. I can't do a good job on his leg. So I would say the more you know about things, you have to set aside those things that you can't alter. Whenever you look at somebody and Jesus Christ, I can't handle that, you just set it aside. Like that. If you can't, is there anybody here that's difficulty setting aside the things they can't alter? Okay. The reason you can't set them aside is because of the investment in time. In other words, you have an investment in your head in another person or thing or object. This is the investment. And to set it aside, it's so involved, a lot of you people are not familiar with that kind of involvement, so I'll try to enlarge the involvement here. This is a, an automobile of a certain person or a house. Let's assume this is a person's house. And the house of that person is what they impress the Bentleys with, their house. It also means a higher salary at the institute that they teach at, because the professors respect them, because they have a nice house and car. It also means that the pride of ownership. So it's involved in areas of the brain, many, many different areas. So if you erase this one, it still would be connected to others. In other words, we, uh, our brain, like, like uh, you may have seen, some of you may have seen drawings of uh, brain topography in terms of information. I don't know if you've seen it, but it has been demonstrated. I think it's in Kahn's book, Man Instruction Function. You got it? Mm -hmm. Do you remember the drawings of, I don't know whether it was a, a concert pianist. Now that appeared in Life magazine. And the way the brain is organized. You don't remember that? It's something like this. At least the drawing as I remember it. There's a drawing of the brain, and then there's a something like this shown, the fingers of the pianist occupy nearly the brain in relation to use. The pianist, every time they play the piano, they organize millions of cells each time over again. So there's a great deal of the brain organized in relation to the finger movements. Whereas the ballet dancer has in her brain, or his brain, the body and its extremities in terms of use. If the legs are used more, they occupy a greater region of the brain. If the hands are used less, they occupy a minimal region. So that's how the ballet dancer looks in their head, in the cortical regions. Now, whenever you see a little animal to help you out with this, this is a fictitious animal with tremendous eyes, or that may look very black to you, like that, and very little ears. It means that the occipital lobe, the visual hemisphere of the brain, are highly related to vision. Whenever you see an animal with tiny eyes, fictitious eyes, and uh, enormous ears, the temporal lobes are highly developed, the hearing areas. They pay a lot of attention to that. No, there are some animals that have that sniff all the time, small eyes and small ear, a nose that's moving all the time like a pig. You ever notice that? 
The pig's snout is moving all the time. Well, the olfactory bulb of the brain is the dominant thing that moves the pig from one area to another. Now, human beings, by conditioning, animals more by the nature of the optic nerve and the rig of the brain, but human beings, by conditioning, pay attention to bodily movements if you're a ballet dancer. Assuming if you spend all your life in ballet, then you pay a lot of attention to grace, bodily movements, timing, uh, what you would call the professional movements that, that, are, that are not studied. They come easy. And you look for those things. And the, the non-professional is subjectively pleased by the dance. They don't look at it critically. Like a person might say to you, I go to a symphony orchestra, I know the first thing about music or who wrote it, nor do I know anything about it. I just enjoy a good concert. I don't think they can enjoy a concert in the sense that a conductor can enjoy a concert. Because the conductor, when he listens to a concert, he listens to the violins and he, then he turns that off and listens to the cello and he listens to the bassoon. He's able to tune in and turn out and pay attention to so many fragments that the average person doesn't even take in. In fact, he doesn't even know their discord or zones in which sound has been eliminated or bypassed. So I'm talking about an educated ear. I'm talking about educated vision. Is there anyone who doesn't understand me? So none of us, even though a psychologist were to test us, or an ophthalmologist were to test our vision and find that our vision is all about equal, we still see, like I said before, with our brain. The fashion designer is very conscious of your pants and your blouse and, and your skirt. The fashion designer has a, a propensity to be selective, not by inheritance, selective by background. The man who collects wine, a wine taster, he pours the wine in his mouth and moves it around, looks up, and that means he's thriving on feedback. And as he's kicking the wine around, he talks to himself. Just the right amount of time. He, no, he, he's sensing a lot about that wine. Some guys, I don't know if you've ever seen this, they take a bottle of beer and they hold it up and it pours down and they don't swallow it. You ever seen that? A guy pour beer into his stomach without the, the, uh, any movement? Mm -hmm. right. Now, he doesn't taste the beer. People that gulp food don't taste food. When you cut up food, Put it on your tongue and toss it around, chew it a while. And, you know, you, even in drinking coffee, most people don't know how to enjoy a good cup of coffee. You're supposed to swallow it and then exhale. You drink your coffee and then exhale slowly through your nose, and it tastes very different. Because like I indicated before, if this is the world's greatest cup of coffee, after you had the first four sips, the rest of it doesn't taste the same. Because you're now saturated with coffee. So if you want to taste coffee, you drink coffee, then a little water, then a little coffee, and you taste the coffee again. In other words, you've got a mouthful of peanut butter. You can't taste the peanut butter after the peanut butter coats the tongue. Like I said, in the future, if you put a lot of salt and pepper on your food, the tongue is on the bottom of the food. And so the salt and pepper goes down into your stomach with very little taste. So the engineers of the future will engineer food with the taste running through the food at the proper interval. Let me tell you what I mean. If pepper, I'm just talking about pepper, which is not important, or bay leaves are ground up in the food, and this is the interval of separation, and that's the maximum the taste buds can perceive in man. 
So if you have bay leaves at that interval, you're using more food than necessary and you're saturating the taste buds. You see? And the same for coffee. If you have the coffee that's super strong, lots of coffee flavor, that bitterness and the taste buds of the tongue become saturated with coffee. Let me tell you what that means. Well, this is one of the cells of taste. This is an area of the tongue. The tongue has pockets in it like that. And in those pockets are little ciliated cells like hairs. And there's saliva in there. And when a particle of food falls in there, it's dissolved, digested. And the chemical changes conduct through the hairs to the brain. But if you put more substance in the food than you can handle, then the taste buds are so saturated, they require recovery time. If this is the cell that tastes garlic, uh, once you've hit it with garlic, it goes, turns off. And then it takes a few seconds to recover so you can taste the garlic again. So the best way to taste garlic is to put garlic in food at a given interval throughout the food. Then, the next thing you have to do is then eat some fresh salad, then get back to your garlic. Then you will taste the garlic. So someday, taste engineering will come into being, in which foods are arranged that taste good at every spoonful. You wonder why things don't taste good all the time because of saturation. You can, in other words, if I put a gun to you, and, f and give you some whipped cream with nuts in it and uh, you know black syrup in it. It's delicious. But when you get down to the third bowl, and I got a gun against this, it says, come on, keep going. <laughs> the very sight of that caused him to regurgitate. Can you understand that? Now, when he's through with that, I says, whipped cream, and he regurgitates. Then I force him with a gun to eat another bowl right at that time. And the next day you mention whipped cream, and he slaps you. So, is whipped cream good? Is it bad? Is anything good or bad? All human beings, have a saturation level in all areas. You have to find out what that saturation level is. And when you hit saturation, when you hit saturation, you have to turn to me and say, hey, John, uh, it's easy for you to talk about 4,000 points in perspective, but I pick up more if you just stay with 10. You see what I mean? Because I could never know your saturation level. You can be so polite that you can sit there and listen to a guy's description of a cutaway view of the Earth all the way down to the Nicolaian core. A super detailed description. <laughs> and you're sitting there perspiring. It's very interesting, but you can't handle it. Now, a lot of us feel embarrassed because we should be able to handle it. So we, we, we get uptight, we get sick, we fart, we belch, we get gurgling in the stomach in some instances because we sometimes hit saturation. Or sometimes we're just plain hungry or whatever it may be. We have to know what our saturation rate is. That's why normal people become ultra-saturated at a discussion or a lecture on neurology that runs an hour and a half. The average person, first of all, doesn't understand the language and doesn't even understand the significance, so they become saturated. All right, so I'll use another word, bored. Whenever, I'm using call now, whenever call bores me, this isn't true, it's just a, uh, a thing to talk about. It just means that I'm not interested in the subject matter to the extent and the intent which Call delivers it. Because Call has flown 400 different types of airplanes. And when he meets me, he's always telling me about the landing gear problems of a Cessna 231. And I don't give that much of a shit about it. See, I am interested lightly. And then he calls me up at night. He says, let me tell you about the new Boeing. And I'm not that interested. So. There's no such thing as a boring person. There are people that you are not interested in. 
There are people that discuss subject matter that doesn't phase you. In other words, if a behavioral engineer approaches you and he's telling you about all this new electronic gear, you're interested only up to a point. And that's what's so good about sometimes 60 Minutes or, or uh, Nova, because they usually know uh, how much to dish out before the people fall asleep on the air. And they, so whenever a person says, oh, that person, they bore me, it only means that they're not interested in their subject matter. I'm trying to say that no one is boring. They're just people, like I said before, who doesn't understand that? So you can't describe, possibly a marine biologist might bore a housewife if he wrote the subject for an hour and a half. A housewife would bore the marine biologist. It just means saturation of the subject. So if you know your own learning thresholds, if you don't know what that means, you know when to get off. Okay. If you're interested in human behavior, to the extent you have need for what I'm talking about, then you, you lap it up, you know, because you have a great need for it. And so if you were to play your tapes to a person that doesn't have that much need for it, they may get bored. They may say, oh my God, you know, the hell with that shit. And you say, listen, it's interesting. It's like an astronomer that says of a, in the millions of stars, there's a blue streak in this area that we've never seen before. And he's photographed a blue streak, right, left, blue, with a spectroscope, all kinds of things. And he's showing people pictures of a blue streak. And all they want to know is about Saturn and the rings, which are obvious, you know. So the levels of inquiry of different people differ. And as long as you understand that, as long as you can someday do a survey on people and know what their saturation levels are, before the kid comes into a classroom, he would have been exposed to a computer which tells you that that kid can take geology for 26 minutes. Well, after that, the learning drops. So when you get 20 kids in the future, you will have a chart giving an indication of what they can take. Isn't that interesting? And so the lecture will be over in 20 minutes and the person says, Jesus Christ, it was very interesting. That's because it was engineered for that type of person. Now at these sessions here, all the, all the people here have different levels of inquiry and different needs. And there's no way you can adjust it to everyone's need. No more than you can adjust your music to a, a wide audience. You can only adjust it to a certain kind of audience. That's why when you say the rock and roll kings are coming to town tomorrow, the kind of people that go there are the kind of people that don't get saturated in two and hour, two, three hours. Uh, I remember people that used to take children to, to scientific exhibits or take them with them shopping. They say, Mommy, when are we going home? That the child has achieved saturation very early. Now, if you go to a playground with a child and tug on the child's clothing and say, when are we going home? You've been playing with the toys for 20 minutes now. And the kid said, <laughs> get lost. The child, children rarely turn around and say, what are your needs? Am I boring you playing with these toys? I'd love to see children like that. So to a child, if you give him a tin can, he happens to hit it, makes a loud noise, he feels a tremendous power. He feels this big can and bang, 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 bang. And he feels that he's generating all that tremendous sound undulating all through the space. And the people next door, oh, I'm like, God, what the hell is that goddamn idiot doing? Because we don't have need for that. That's why you lock the children up in a stainless steel ball, acoustically designed, put the drums in there, and let them bang away the saturation. See? But saturation for them will occur 
In fact, you can even engineer the interior to generate quick saturation. Uh, which I would probably do. <laughs> so, it, it's very difficult for a lot of people, say 10 or 12 people, to live in a building, say like Walden 2, they're all living in the same environment, because conversation saturation varies with the different people. And say, what do you think of Jennifer? And he says, I find her a bore. And Bill says, oh, she's very interesting. I don't understand you at all. And this person says, Oh, I don't know about that. I think Harrison is interesting. All they're talking about is their personal reactions. And once you come to understand that, you will also understand that, that uh, what you deliver to different people has to do with their own saturation rate. And, and this is what we don't take time out. I'd, li I'd like to see the day when a six-year-old says, I notice I've been playing in the bathtub and splashing the water, and a certain percentage of the water is landing on the floor, which I intend to clean up when I'm through. Due to my age, not having seen waves and soap and foam as you have, being much more experienced than I am, I will sit there and splash this water around until saturation occurs, which may be a week, a week and a half. Don't forget, I'm still three and a half years old. Oh, that would be fantastic to see children like that. Uh, so I would like children exposed to a wide range of that so it doesn't overlap into the adult world. Uh, the word that we use, we use a word called consideration. The children don't have consideration in most instances because they're subjective. Look, mommy may splash water out of the tub, hit the ceiling, and, and they find it so fascinating that they can't understand why mother isn't taking the water and splashing it out of the ceiling. That there's, it's so big and so real to them, they can't, they can't for one minute sense that other people don't. And we get back to that dog situation uh, in which I try to indicate to some of you here, if a dog were to raise its hind leg and scratch itself, like that, you've seen that before, and stop, if you go over and scratch that area of the dog, he'll lie there while you're scratching him. And for one minute, he doesn't imagine or think about how you knew where it itched. He doesn't even entertain the thought. But there's a thought he does entertain, that of course it itches there, and since it itches there, you know that. And now, just as he knows where it itches, he assumes that you know where it is because the itch is so obvious. And that's why when a child is watching a motion picture and, and watching a comedy or anything and laughing and having a ball, that child imagines or thinks that you're right with them, that it's just as amusing to you. They haven't the luxury of differences. All right. Now, the way you can generate that in a child is by taking them to an enjoyable short movie about five minutes and then run it until saturation, the same movie over again. Then tell them, oh, I want to see another movie. Then you say, why do you want to see another Because I saw that once, no, five times. And Billy didn't see it. He says, I know, but I want to go. Says, what about Billy? I don't care, I want to go. Okay. He, uh, if Billy saw the movie five times and he just comes in, he says, oh, stay, Billy, and see the movie. He says, I saw it five times. See, children, in their head, everything out there and everything that occurs and everybody around them exists for them. That's a very hard thing to imagine. Like I said before, dogs and cats, when a cat is in a room and you come in, like I said, with shopping bags, the cat's brain says, it's bringing me food. Right now, that's what's bringing me food. There's nothing else in that bag. 
So you empty a hat and a lamp bulb and things like the cat watching it and waits for the food to come out. Those tuna fish or whatever it is, and you bring that. And when there's no tuna fish, the cat doesn't understand why you came in at all with those bags. See, in a cat's head, your existence is to enhance their living. A dog, when you get in the car, the dog runs out there because the dog is being taken around. The dog, they have to go shopping, they're taking me with them. You know, they feed me and all, what the hell can I do? I gotta wait in the car. The dog doesn't have that attitude. A dog always knows where it itches. And a dog always knows that you exist to satisfy his itch and hunger. And that's the way a cat thinks about the world. An insect doesn't even concern itself with it. When a fly lands on you, it just drinks. You know, it doesn't say there's another human being. Why should I take his blood? After all, it's his, his blood, you know. A fly just lands and starts sucking. If you disappeared, he wouldn't give a shit. No more than you give a shit as you happen to step on a roach on the way out. You see? So you got to remember that elemental structures don't have the luxury of wondering about things. That's why some adults that have had it too easy all their lives have absolutely no concern for other human beings. None whatsoever. Because they have never had to identify with that kind of a situation. So when a person says, I don't care, it means I don't have an investment in that area. I'm changing the language. When, I, when you come up to me weak and says, my house burned to the ground, and says, I don't care. That means I'm not making any payments on it. I don't collect the insurance on it. And I don't have any relationship to it. So I don't care means I have no investment in it. So you got to understand this. When a person says, I do care, you care about people? Yes. Good. There are people on the planet Euripides that are dying of starvation. Where's Euripides? 80 million light years straight up that way. So if you send a buck and a half, it'll diminish their starvation. Some people might do that. Now if you say, there are 80 quadrillion Euripides out in space, and we need a penny for each one. So give as many pennies as you can, and then you finally announce that there's zillions of Euripides out there, see? Then they don't give a shit. It becomes too big, too big for them to comprehend. And that's why anything outside of Weehawken County, Virginia, is in another universe. And that's why the tight-knit family, whether it be the Jewish, Italian, or Greek family, it, the family as an institution is easy to perceive. When it comes to things like a community, the luxury of that kind of thought is difficult to perceive. Being concerned with other people means less in your house. It means less cake, less bread, less luxuries, no hi-fi in your car. So, being selfish is reinforced. So if you keep asking me, why are people so selfish? Because when they're not selfish, and they flip the switch, the light doesn't go on. And when they put on their hi-fi and they listen to music, it doesn't sound as good because they didn't buy the needle that cost $12. They bought the needle that cost three cents. When they're selfish, their music sounds better. They get steak and potatoes. See, you gotta understand selfishness I'm using that word. Self-reinforcement to the extreme is actual. And the luxury of giving things away doesn't pay off in terms of the individual. So instead of walking out and saying, why are human beings so selfish? It's because it's reinforced. Anything you don't understand about that? You should be able to understand that. Now, children cannot afford the luxury of concern about other children. We could teach them that. We could teach children not to make any kind of noise at all if there's an adult around. Without being frustrated, God, when they leave, I'll be able to make noise. They could be conditioned to enjoy yielding. Can any of you think of an example where an organism 
is conditioned to enjoy yielding. See if you can recall any event. A person will yield to someone else. Nobody can? Well, in the, in the general area of what we call polite behavior. Yeah. All right. You but yield and let the old lady go in and open the door for the old lady. Don't you Somewhere yield. in the past it's been reinforced. Somebody right. patted you on the back and said you're a good guy or something. Right. Now, if you reinforce any elements of behavior or reward it, you can get people to be excessively generous. And to the point where it almost appears ridiculous to you. I just want you to understand that any pattern of behavior, uh, and no matter how ridiculous it may seem to you, I can get people to jump into volcanoes voluntarily and fight to be the first one to jump in. Does anybody know how that would be done? Well, it depends how you rearrange the reinforces. <laughs> you don't understand? We go to heaven if they go. All right, the kamikaze pilot. He dives his airplane into an aircraft carrier. In the beginning, the Germans, when, when they had a suicide uh, group there, what they call them, kamikaze pilots, the Japanese. The Japanese worked it out this way. They designed an airplane in the beginning. And they put the guy in, and he was to dive that plane into the aircraft carrier, whatever, because he had just enough fuel to get to that aircraft carrier, just a little more. And then when he took off his landing gear, he made something the ground. You understand what I mean? In some cases, they were locked into the canopy. <laughs> huh? When you lock the guy in the canopy, and when he takes off his landing gear, he's gone, he about to turn around and come home. Right. Now, uh, and also, he goes right to Happy Happy Land. The Vikings, Valhalla, you know what that is? Heaven. If a Viking dies in battle, he goes to heaven. Otherwise, he'll never go to heaven. Isn't that interesting? So a Viking had to die in battle if he wanted to go to heaven. So you can condition people to jump into a volcano, dive their plane into things, you know, run into a flamethrower, if, if this is their area of reinforcement. Now, can you condition a person to run into flame and feel no pain? The answer is yes. You can condition a person to run into flame and feel no pain. Now, here's how that's done. Some people use words like self-hypnosis, and that doesn't mean anything, because it doesn't tell you how it's done. It's just words. I'm going to try to show you the physical process whereby that is done. What is pain first? Anybody want to try a definition of pain? You want to try for it? Does it require physical interruption of your surface, cutting of the skin? No. Putting sand in your eyes? What other kinds of pain are there? That is not genuinely related to damaging of the structure by a physical object or a death ray, or burning his leg off with a laser beam. None of that. See if you can think of pain where you don't touch the physical structure with an object or chemical poison. Well, emotional pain or intellectual pain. Right. Now, emotional pain can be so great that a person will find it easier to die than live. And emotional pain was that, that he had founded the first church of Mark. And then he built it up there, and the, she, he came over and pissed on it and burnt it down. <laughs> he might tear his skin off in agony. Now, it's about, it has to do with conditioning. And conditioned pain is the worst. This is what makes people lose their mental equilibrium. They can stand a hell of a lot of physical pain, but emotional pain 
really digs at your guts, your eyes, your will to live and eat, all that sort of thing. Everything uh, doesn't turn out well when you're depressed emotionally. But here's what it's about then. When you have a human being that can stand great pain, here's what's happening. That there is an event in their head, and that event to them is significant right there. And if you twist their wrist and say, well, you give up Christ, now, pain begins at 10 for this person. The rejection of Christ at, at this level here would hit 10. If, if you twist their wrist, it goes up to 3. And if you twist wrist and pull on the elbow, it goes up to 5, but never 10. So it depends on the investment. Let me put it your way. Suppose I attempt to saw off your arm at this point here. You will suffer a great deal. But if I took 5,000 children that you love, they're going to be dumped in boiling lead, and you love these children, you know who they were, all sort of thing, over years, or we saw off your arm. It's much easier for you to have your arm sawed off. Do you understand that? So when you put your arm on, they say, do you do it with reluctance? You know, I do it gladly. Then called him, so it's just a minute, he says, I'm in charge of this torture chamber. Just saw off the finger, and you kiss his hand. <laughs> and you smile when I saw him. But what the hell's a finger alongside of an arm? Pain is comparative. And George Crowell's book, A Mechanistic View of War and Peace, he said some guy was carrying a buddy into the medical tent. And the guy, this buddy had his guts hanging out. The guy was carrying him. And Crowell said when he got into the medical tent, med medical a camp, he said the guy's own arm was hanging by shreds and he didn't even know it. Because sometimes in an automobile accident, mothers look back and say, how's the baby? You know, and half the arm is off and all shred and one of the ribs are hanging up. You know, how's the baby? And they run back and they're working on the baby and they don't feel this pain. And they carry the baby out and they put it down and then when the ambulance comes, ah! <laughs> and they just notice that they've got the pain. So here's the way it works. In the brain, there are paths that move in different directions. If the baby in the back of the car is the important thing to you, the pain is of that order. So this supersedes that. Now I'll put it in another sense. Suppose I took a pin and I run it through your finger. But while I'm running the pin through the finger, I run a rusty corkscrew up your ass like that, a big one. You don't feel the pin going through your finger. I'm exaggerating the condition here. Do you understand? In other words, if I, if I put a Mack truck on your arm and let it hang from a precipice while somebody is piercing your ear, you don't seem to remember that. I, because there are orders of pain, and here's how it works. Destruction of art's church brings pain. That's maximum pain, see? Now, an atheist, it brings the maximum of pleasure, not the destruction of the church, but the surpassing of the values of the teachings of the church. So. Here you have a reverse scale system. So it's entirely possible for a person to have their legs sawed off or to walk into flames and not feel it. Now, the way you do that, let's assume you actually believed in Christ. You, you had no doubts about that kind of thing. And you knew by walking in the flame, you would be one with Christ. And the ecstasy, I don't know if you've ever seen religious ecstasy. It's a very rare thing. Uh, ecstasy may be experienced by some artists in their, in their artful expression, whether it be music, there's some kind of ecstasy achieved in that. You take the maximum ecstasy that a person can achieve. In walking into a flame, the ecstasy is in excess of the burn. Because your idea ahead is so great 
that the burn, let me tell you how it runs, pain runs up to a certain point. And beyond that point, uh, I, I better go back to this incident. I told you, some of you, about a man who slapped his child a great deal. It's the kid that broke the ship model in the bottle. The father would slap him without letter, continuously like that. Not for, you know, two minutes, like 20 minutes, but not knock his head over, just constantly slap him. And the kid said to me that after a while, after about 20 slaps, it just felt very hot, no pain. Can you understand that? Is there anybody that doesn't understand that? You don't? If I, if I put your hand on a board, one, I it would sting. But after a while, well, like 500 times, assuming it wasn't doing it, you would feel very hot there, but no pain. Pain saturation occurs. You know what I mean? The receptors of pain become fatigued. They've got to produce, the new chemicals produced to transfer the pain to the brain. So you're saturated and use it up. Let me put it your way. Those eyes shine a light at your eyes a hundred times as bright as the illumination of this room. Do you ever do that? And then, and then open your eye and look around. The room looks dark. Do you ever do that? Pull the flashlight against your eye for a while, and then, then, then cover the eye, and look at the room. It goes down in key. It has a low level of illumination. Then, come, then it comes back bright again with this eye. Do you understand that? All right, now, see if you follow this example. This is a true case here, so is the other. In this case, they took an animal, and they split the brain in half. So there was no transfer from the right to the left hemispheres of the brain. They split it and they used a kind of cellophane to divide the brain into two halves. Then they covered this eye of the animal. This is a, a drawing of a fictitious animal. Now, with this eye, they this eye is covered. They expose this animal to this guy. And this guy always fed it and petted it and scratched its itch. Then they covered this eye and expose the same guy to the animal, and this guy beat the animal, burnt it, and tortured it. Now, when you cover the left eye, and it sees the tail wags, and the dog comes over and licks his hand. And if you cover this eye, ah, it snaps at the guy. Can you understand that? Is there anybody that doesn't understand that? If the brain is split, it learns about you through this eye in relation, and all that information goes into the brain, and when you cover this eye, there's a totally different reaction. There are people that have a split in their value system. They study science during the day and they go to church at night. Totally contradictory. And what they call, they say, is it possible to have a split personality? Is it possible to have a shattered personality? Where you have 60 different types of reactions to, depending on your background and investment in the background. The main bit then, in this kind of a system here, is what is pain to this dog and what is pleasure? In the learning system, this has been painful, and the second learning system to recover eye, this has been pleasurable. If you expose both eyes, there's a very interesting type of dualistic feeling in the animal. There's a slow tail wag while the incisors are exposed, and a growl, and a slow tail wag. Can you understand that? And the dog swallows saliva, and it's between anger and joy. It's a very strange feeling like laughter. The respiratory rate of laughter is very similar to weeping. There are people that have laughed themselves into tears. You ever see that? And there are people in a very sad situation that have cried and went into hysterical laughter. Have you ever seen that? Because the systems are so close to one another. I laughed at my mother's funeral. What type of laughter? Well, it, it wasn't hilarious. 
But I guess I was so nervous or something, instead of crying, I just started laughing. Were you crying at any time? Uh, yeah, part of the time I was crying, part of the time I was laughing. Were you laughing out loud or yourself? No, I was trying to hide it, but... Oh, okay. Uh, All right. Now, did you feel bad, wrong? Uh, no, not too bad, because I'd been coming here about ten years. But I was thinking that I must, there must be a similarity in, in, the, yes. in the two processes. There is a similarity in laughter, and there's a similarity between love and hate. And I'm not talking about Freud now. I'm talking about the patterns, the extremes of the patterns. Because a great amount of love can only be identified by, let, again, let me do it the old way, where I come around and I burn his wrist, burn it with a hot iron, then I burn his elbow, and I burn that area. And I burn all of you people here. Then the other guy comes in, and he just sticks a pen in because why? There comes the nice guy again. You see, there comes the nice guy again. Depends on how much burning you receive. So love seems to be related to if you lived in a very painful world, we identify with the person that is the least painful, and so love is transferred to that person. And then if we go to another area where the patterns are very different, it becomes it transfers to another person. Can you understand that? Was that too far out for you? Okay. So if you don't understand then how it is that a person doesn't feel pain, it's just they put no order of significance to it. You have to practice that. It's not easy to do. We give things significance. And if you give something significance, you suffer. Any questions about any of that kind of subject? Getting back to the guy in the beginning who got a lot of money and got out of his job and got out of the whole situation. Yeah. Take away his money. He has to go back to that same situation. Ah, he reaches, it's difficult, Dad. Right. He reaches, he reaches saturation very quickly, which tends to mean that the situation makes the person more than the person makes the situation. Yes. Which might mean the best we can do, instead of really thinking about changing, is to avoid situations that are disaster. Yes. yes. All right. Now, what didn't happen in the past is the area of the brain that was inhibited only went so far. And once the grandfather died, it went all the way and made all kinds of connections. It broke loose, see? And when it breaks loose, and, and the situation then reversed, your grandfather died, but he went down with the ship, and his fortune and all, see? So these pathways are already broken. And it's extremely difficult to go back. But now you have the, the uh, illusion that you're stuck with, and, and a very great disappointment in most people because of this breakthrough here. Do you know kind of breakthrough I'm talking about? The freedom of the pathways. Okay. Any other questions about that? If you don't understand then why it is or how it is, what I tried to get across in this session tonight was how it is that people, even though they come to sessions, read a lot of books, don't always oper operate operationally because the world is the prime effector. You've got to remember that term. The prime effector is the world, the environment. And what you get out of books is secondary. It isn't a prime factor. You might read about fascinating things, but the real world still puts its burden upon your shoulder. In other words, uh, no matter what kind of work you do, uh, if you don't get reinforced for it, you can't afford the luxury of saying the man has been conditioned not to reinforce. That's Skinner would, because he always gets his paycheck. He can write about reinforcement. But if Skinner taught one day and he got a paycheck sometimes, then he was stiff on the end of the month. The school decided not to pay him on the end of the month. He's stiff, you know, a guy that doesn't tip. Well, Skinner doesn't say he's a non-tipper been conditioned not to tip. He can't pay his rent. 
He can't buy gas for the car. He has to call his daughter back from school. He's sending him to school. So he doesn't, he's not a, you can't be a mechanist. I want you to understand that. No human being can be alive and breathing and walk into an area where there's toxic fumes and say, look, there's toxic fumes here. There's not a thing I can do about it, so I might as well breathe the toxic fumes. Because it's painful and irritating. Make you hack and cough. The <coughs> cough reflex is a result of the toxic fumes. <coughs> you can't do that. We cannot be so rational as to set aside all things and be logical. Man is a being immersed in an environment. And the sickness of our environment is that we, we have to live in an insane world and cope with the, the slight elements of sanity wherever they are. So permit uh, differences on the part of other people, limitations on the part of other people. Don't erect images of perfection for other people. Don't move your standards up too high. In fact, anything pleasant that occurs should be remarkable. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, my school teacher only spanked me 24 times this week, you see. This is wonderful. And because we always, we always have, she shouldn't have done it that much, though, see what I mean? We have those expectations that hurt us. The Roman doesn't understand the pain bit. How you can walk in the fire? All right, let me ask you something. Would you walk across broken glass, 10 feet of it, very sharp, and you will feel a certain level of pain, Thereafter, $20 million, the best medical treatment, no more price system, no annoyances anymore. <laughs> but you've got to sing while you're walking over the glass. Would you sing? I certainly would. Is there anybody here that thinks they can do that? Is there anybody thinks they can do that? It's only six feet of broken glass. <laughs> because what you're thinking about is when you get across that broken glass, which is only less than 30 seconds. So, if you still don't understand how pain can have no meaning, you can't understand that? Don't mind it. All right. So, if you can't understand how pain can have no meaning, I'm trying to give you an example. Suppose a guy took a rusty nail, put it above your hand, the greatest medics were right in your body, and drove it into the board. From thereafter, anything you want, what are you waiting for, Mac? <laughs> and you hardly feel that nail go through. I know most of you don't believe that. When the, what you're getting for it, is so great you won't feel the pain. Now, a great painful thing to you might be, I don't know you that well, to get in a bucket of shit that deep and shovel it out. Of a, you know, work in a cesspool. Hospital shit, you know what I mean? More kinds of sick people. Then a bucket of shit, not with rubber suit. There's a medicinal shower waiting for you as soon as you get out of there, and they're gonna really clean you up and give you lifetime guaranteed income. All kind of, the bucket of shit doesn't mean very much. But if you sing in the bucket of shit with a smile, you know, we do a movie of that. You see what I mean? Would you let him do a movie of two minutes in the bucket of shit for a lifetime of anything you want? Would you? Well, if you have any doubts, a half a minute in the bucket of shit. The, the idea is that anybody will get in the bucket of shit if you can alter the variables. And right now, I mean, most of you are in a bucket of shit for some kind of value. Right? Shall we go for we ain't getting no million dollars for it. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're going to heaven. You're going to heaven when you die. That's the same thing. That's in the bucket of shit.